This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. Welcome, everyone. Um, I am so delighted that Harry Shearer is today. He just told me he was born ready, and he pretty much is because he has done everything. Uh, and thank you for coming. And um, Hummy Man is is just a sweetheart, and I'm so glad he's he's a new board member and he's so active already. And I'm very happy to introduce him, Hummy Man. Thank you. Actually, the funny thing is that I was a board member 20 years ago also. So this is my second stint as a board member. Um, well, thank you all for coming. And uh, you probably, on some level, Harry Shearer's talent, wit, uh, voice has, has touched almost everybody's lives in America. So I'm really pleased that he was able to be here with us today. Of course, you look at his credits and you have, I certainly felt like, okay, what have I done with my life? Um, he's, he's been on both sides of the camera. You know his, his, his multiple personality voices. Uh, he's a songwriter, he's a producer. I, I, I was actually thinking of, uh, you know, we were discussing some stuff and there was that NPR show of like Not My Job where they bring people on and they ask them questions about things they shouldn't know anything about. You couldn't do that with Harry because he's done every single thing that I could possibly think of. Maybe maybe we could ask him about makeup or something. Maybe he doesn't know much about that. Although no, who knows? It's entirely possible that he knows a ton about that too. Anyway, I don't know where he disappeared to. Oh, there he is! Uh, everybody, please welcome Harry Shearer. I'm doing rock and roll today, so I'm dressed in black. That makes me invisible. And, and you should notice his uh, T-shirt. We'll discuss that later. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> we, were discuss yeah, we were discussing some of the crazy stuff that goes on in Hollywood and getting caught up. I think the last time I saw you, you were up in Seattle and you were playing with uh, Michael and Chris and the Unwigged. Unwigged and Unplugged Tour, unwigged yes. Unwigged and Unplugged Tour, yeah. yes. Which of course, uh, uh, probably many of us, our consciousness of Harry Shearer was in uh, Spinal Tap and certainly... Uh, so, let's go way back for starters, because okay. you were a child actor. Yes, sir. And now, so I, two questions is, A, was that something that your mother pushed you into, or were you from an industry family? Or? No, no, my family were, uh, my parents were both uh, European immigrants, uh, sole survivors of their respective families, uh, who were doing nothing remotely resembling what they planned to do with their lives. My dad had trained to be an opera singer in Vienna, wow. ended up uh, running a shell gas station at the corner of Jefferson and Figueroa near giant Felix Chevrolet. Uh, and my mom had trained, was going to be a paleontologist and uh, ended up being a bookkeeper also in the oil business and then took over the gas station when my dad died. Uh, so, uh, no, it was uh, a, a fluke. I was sort of besotted with the business uh, but as a, uh, any Jewish kid of that era, uh, I had been made to take piano lessons starting at about the age of four. Of course. <laughs> and 
My piano teacher, I, I like to think I had something to do with the fact that she made a, a, a career change and decided to stop being a children's <laughs> piano teacher. And she had a daughter who worked as an actress on a show called Our Miss Brooks with Eve Arden. Uh, and so she had contacts in the business, so she decided to be a children's agent, and she said to my parents, do you mind if I try to get Harry some jobs? And I don't know if she said that to the parents of every one of her students, but my parents said, oh, it's all right. And eight months of silence went by, and then there was an audition for the Jack Benny show, Jack Benny program, pardon me, and I went in and, you know, did a good cold reading because I was a good reader and uh, walked into show business. So how old were you at that time? Seven. So at seven was your first professional work? Yeah, I mean, literally the audition was a, a very few blocks from here at the Taft building at the corner of Hollywood and Vine. Uh, and Jack Benny's brother-in-law was, was the producer of the show. How did he get that job? Um, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, as I say, I was, I was a good cold reader. I have no idea if my performances ever got better than the first reading, but I, I did a good first reading. Okay, so wait a second. So you're... Piano teacher recognized that you didn't have piano talent. But the... She didn't recognize that. <laughs> I'm not saying that. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I'm saying that it might not have been a pleasure for her to teach me piano. I see, I see. No, because well, I kept taking piano lessons. I took, so you continued piano lessons. Yeah, I took about eight more years, very serious classical piano. Uh, I was the only student of a teacher here in town who claimed lineage through Czerny back to uh, Beethoven, and I was the only one of her students who was not supposedly being primed for a concert career. Wow. So I was the one that she knew was only going to be practicing an hour a day at most. The other kids were practicing eight. Five or six. Yeah, 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 and all that stuff. Yeah. So now this is classical piano. Yeah. So so obviously if she was had heard Spinal Tap years later. She would be shocked. <laughs> I was going to say, it's like, I spent all this time with this guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the thing for me was, uh, as any good classical teacher would be doing, she insisted on me reading. Mm-hmm. And I, at that, you know, then and now, I'm an ear player. Sure. Uh, I, I was born with perfect pitch. It's, you know, worth nothing, but I, I have it. Um, I'm impressed. No, it's just, you know, it, it, it gets you a $4 on a, on a bus token. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so I could learn any piece by listening to it. And so she forbade my parents to buy records of the pieces that we were learning. So you'd have to kind of get through it really slowly. And once you did bar it. by bar, okay. bar yeah, by yeah, yeah. freaking bar. And I never had a sense of the overall piece until we were playing a recital. So I found, wow. I found that unsatisfying, strangely. <laughs> That's amazing. So when did you actually start writing I mean, with, with, when you were writing songs, because obviously we all know some of your numbers. Yeah. I mean, was that, and were they, did they start off satirical at the beginning? Or like, what, what, what came first, if you could kind of look at a timeline? Well, I, I picked up the bass after I left college and I'd quit piano. And I thought, this is an instrument I'm going to learn my way. So I got some lessons from a guy who was the bass player of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And then uh, just played along with everything. Uh, electric bass electric bass and um, and then around that time I started writing lyrics but they were embarrassing kind of earnest lyrics so I put them away okay um, I know fortunately that. we all go through that stage <laughs> <laughs> the public is is uh, fortunate that they did go into a drawer and nowhere else um, <laughs> but I was doing this show on the radio here with uh, among other people Michael McKeon right. and Michael had been a songwriter since he'd been a teenager had been in a couple bands and so he wrote satirical songs for the radio show, and uh, little by little, I'd sneak in help with lyrics, or I'd 
play rhythm along with his guitar or keyboard or something. Um, and um, then, you know, came Spinal Tap. And that was really the first time I was involved in the songwriting process for so that, real. That's already pretty late. So let's go back still. Cause, so you, you play piano all the way through college? No, I quit in about, I quit when I went to college. So you quit you went to college. Yeah. And you picked up bass while you were at Yeah, yeah, while or shortly. Played after. with bands and stuff like that. I never played with bands. Played never. by, my, no, I, I didn't know any bands. You were a solo bass player. I was a bass soloist, yes. <laughs> So I think you should do a one-man show of just bass and vocal. I think well, that, that was be... you know Derek Smalls had a, a long, long planned a uh, a uh, solo bass show called "It's a Smallest World," but <laughs> never happened. Not Actually, to this day, has not happened yet. But I was going to say I could just see the Disney attorneys now. You know, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> we were talking about all the crazy stuff that goes on in Hollywood. Yeah, you try to call it "It's a Smalls World" and see what's what happened, pal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, except. That- their thing is based on a piece of actual language. You know, they did not invent the phrase, it's a small world. I'm sure that they would come after you anyway. Okay. You know, that's just I'm, the nature of the beast. As, as uh, our, our moderator said, I'm born ready. <laughs> come on, bring it down. Bring it on. Bring it on. Okay. Bring so, it on, mouse. So you. <laughs> so. So you, Michael McKean was your first "quote unquote" writing partner, then. Yeah. Did you say? Yeah. And then how did Christopher Guest get into this? Michael and Chris had been uh, had been in a band together in New York uh, oh. uh, back back when. And serious so, band, not a satirical. Yeah, band? serious band. Okay. Yeah. And so when we were putting Spinal Spinal Tap happened, Rob Reiner uh, was executive producing, and I was producing a, a pilot for a television series called The TV Show, and the idea of it. <laughs> You know, everybody's heard of it. Um, and the idea of it was, uh, this was pre-SCTV, the idea of it was that we followed, a guy is sitting on the couch with a remote in one hand and a bag of potato chips in another, and we're just watching what he's watching on TV. Okay. Which solves the great comedy sketch problem of how do you end it? Because there are a lot of sketches, as you, I'm sure everybody has experienced, that are great for the first half, and the and then the ending is just like what they that just stop it? or they just yeah. Stop. yeah. So we had this device. We, we had we had a great two minutes. We didn't have an ending. He hits the remote on to the next thing. So it was a, it was a cool show, and and we were doing a takeoff on the the rock and roll TV show that was on then called the Midnight Special, hosted oh, by sure. Wolfman Jack. Jack. And Rob played Wolfman Jack because he couldn't play an instrument, so that left uh, the rest of us uh, to make this band. And I had hired Chris on the writing staff uh, uh, as we were going through the process, and so Chris and Michael and I just willy-nilly sort of became the, the core of that band that we made up for that show. And then after we did the show, we t- the four of us talked about maybe we should do more with this band. Did this show actually see the light of day? I mean, is this a- it saw the light of very late night? Okay, how many episodes um, were there? One. It was a pilot. Oh, so just a pilot. Yeah. Um, cute ABC's story. Uh, we shot the show as written, didn't fool around. One of the sketches was uh, Billy Crystal uh, was playing Muhammad Ali, and I was playing Tom Snyder, and Muhammad Ali was coming on to announce that he was having another religious conversion and was now uh, becoming an Orthodox Jew <laughs> named, named Izzy Itzkowitz. Um, and uh, we shoot the show as written. So, you know, they approve the script. And then as we're, and we have a time slot, a prime time time slot in May or something. And then uh, Al Schneider, the then, I may still be now, 
head of uh, vice president of ABC for standards, says, uh, uh, all these Jewish references have to come out. I say, well, that's part of this. That's sort of the heart of the sketch. <laughs> I was going to say, it's kind of like the yeah. key. Yeah, <laughs> and we did play by the rules, babe. We, did, we didn't fool anybody. We didn't put any, anything on. So there was a face-off, and uh, so we ended up with a slot at 11.30 in the middle of July. Right. Yeah. Right. One in the morning, middle of July. So yeah. Great. Oh, okay. So then, so that was the start of Spinal Tap. Yes. And, and then we, we uh, got a, a, a little first draft script deal from a company called Marble Arch, and we sat in a room for three days trying to write the script. And we knew what the sort of the idea of the movie was, and after three days we looked at the, the pages and said, nobody would understand this if they read it. Let's go shoot it. So we took the little bit of money that they were paying us for the first draft and, and, and shot 20 minutes, uh, which was our demo reel for the movie. And we walked into every major studio in Hollywood and uh, the lights would go down and we'd show this demo reel. And when the lights came up, you have never seen blanker expressions in your life. <laughs> <laughs> they all said, this was, this, you couldn't do this. Rock, first, they said, rock and roll movies don't make any money. Well, they have all these rules. Yeah. They have all these rules. So, anyway, it got made somewhere. And and as far as I, you know, maybe you know, you're a little older than me, so maybe you can help. I just a oh, tiny sorry. little bit. Okay. Just a tiny bit. <laughs> I have more white hair. So, That's right. You know. uh, but uh, it it actually created a genre. Yeah. I mean, the mockumentary yeah. was, you know, so it's not only was it a film that was, you know, everybody knows, but it actually created a brand new genre, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. We created a, a, a genre which has been uh, rampaged through by a lot of other folks since then. Yeah. And, yeah. And tried not necessarily quite as successfully. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, so that must have been a hoot shooting that film. Though. It was. Um, it was great fun. But, you know, I think the difference between what we were doing and what a lot of people Certainly, there was a, a lot of, of music uh, mockumentaries that followed us. And I think the difference was that uh, our starting point was different. Uh, the four of us, one thing we had in common was impatience with the fact that movies always got rock and roll wrong. Hmm. Down to, he's not playing that. Look oh. at his fingers. Well. So the thing that bound us through all of our differences was let's do a movie that gets it right let's make it real uh and i think every a lot of other people were just trying to screw around and and be funny and not do that that foundational piece first right uh because i think that that movie two things that made that movie i think uh live uh oddly enough uh, one was that it's realness musicians of every stripe have come up to me and said, you know, classical musicians, country musicians take that on the bus with them because it's about the musician's life. Mm -hmm. But secondly, we had so little money that we couldn't fill the frame with all the artifacts of the moment. So you don't see a telephone, you don't see a TV screen, you don't see the exterior of an automobile, the things that date a movie most obviously. So it lives by sheer accident of low budget in this timeless little world. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Now, when you guys were actually performing... On camera, is that were those the recordings? You didn't pre-record this. Time, we did or? pre-record it. Okay, so yes, you did. But yeah. then you we were actually meticulous yes. about making sure that the we were so right. meticulous that when we would see edits of the film and the the assistant, the editor in charge of of editing the songs would put in shots that he liked, oh, and God. we'd say, "Kent, you can't put that shot there. That's not what we're playing." Uh, he said, "But, but that, I like that shot." We would go into the studio and redo the song 
we do the playing to make it work with the shot. Wow. That's we were amazing. crazy. We were, but, we were, we were especially Nazis. On a, especially on a low budget. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. No, we, we cared a lot. I mean, there was a moment where there was a shot, there was a scene that takes place backstage uh, and uh, at a gig where Nigel has left the band and it's just going to be the rump of the band. And uh, the, the stage directions say it's backstage at a, at a venue and there's typical rock and roll graffiti on the walls. Okay. And we walk in, and it looks like the uh, freeway overpass in East L.A. <laughs> so we said to the guy, we call the troubadour. We set the art director up to the troubadour. We got him in, said, look at the real thing, come back and do it right. I mean, we were, it, just, it was so important for us to do it right. You know, it really was. So basically, you, you, it's one of those things where you put all the money to where you need to do just to make it. All right the money is on the screen. What an idea. Yeah, there's a concept. Yeah. There's a concept. Um, and then, so you, what year was that, by the way? came out in 1984. And then there was this huge break until Spinal Tap did. I mean, did Spinal Tap go on and tour right away? We toured. We like did a little tour as soon as the movie came out. We played Detroit. We played. Uh, we did a little tour, which ended on our only really large scale, large venue gig was at the Bumbershoot Festival in Seattle at the Seattle wow. Center, uh, where because the film company was through with us at that time. Uh, they had shipped the skull for the gig, but wouldn't pay for shipping it back. Oh, isn't that funny? So the giant skull lives in Seattle to this day. Who has it? Um, what I know is that a kid, <laughs> a kid went and got it, <laughs> and it was in his backyard. And when we played Seattle on our tour in 92, all these young musicians came up to us and said, we would meet and kind of confer and get inspired by being in this guy's backyard. And those young musicians were Pearl Jam and Nirvana and, all, and oh Soundgarden. Yeah, that's great. That's a great story. That's a fabulous story. Um, but also, and, and maybe this is my perception, but it seems like the movie kind of grew over the years. Well, yeah. I it, mean, so, so doing a tour right after the film seemed like almost not really the best use of the of your talents in terms of like, you needed, it needed like a few years till everybody was kind of, like, it, it became part of the consciousness. Yes, well, I think it was the first non-porn film really to make its bones in, in VHS, in home video, you know. Oh, you're probably right. Because uh, we got thrown out of theaters uh, while we were still filling the seats because our film company was going bankrupt and we learned in the, mu in the movie business, uh, if you don't have a big Christmas film to bribe them into showing your film in May, you'll get kicked out for somebody who does. Oh, wow. Uh, so, yes, in 92, we were meeting, we, we had a chance meeting, Michael, Chris, and I, at Universal uh, Amphitheater. Sorry, the Gibson Amphitheater. And uh, <laughs> it was, we were at a Squeeze concert. Okay. And uh, we met in the lobby at intermission, and we all sort of said, gee, this Spinal Tap thing seems to be catching on. Maybe it's time to do a tour, and and that's when we, you know, came up with the idea of the Break Like the Wind tour, uh, right. which was, and that was and what year was that? That was ninety. The tour was ninety two. And there was a new album also. Break Like the Wind. Break, yeah. break Like the Wind. Yeah. So there. So there. To date, there have been two spinal tours. No. Two. Two, two, two records. Two. Two records. No. Uh, we was did a third a... record uh, a couple of years ago called uh, Back from the Dead. <laughs> Which was premature. <laughs> uh, and was that just before you did the Unwigged tour? Or is that yes. Right? Okay. Yes, it was uh, the inability of us to get uh, uh, tour sponsors for what was supposed to have been. The, it, actually, this would have been four years ago to get to, for a proper Spinal Tap tour that made us end up doing okay. We'll just go out as ourselves and play acoustic. So that was the genesis of the Unwigged and Unplugged tour.
Okay, well, let's move shift gears. Lemon, lemonade out of lemons. Always, was, you know. Know, it was a great tour. I enjoyed the concert. Thank you. Immensely. Yeah, we had fun. Like, you know, are you are you guys? You know, it's when we discovered how how evil the Lego people are. The Lego people. The Lego people. Uh, part of the the tour to fill the time, we uh, showed a couple excerpts from uh, videos that fans had made oh, I of that. Spinal Tap songs, yes. and one of them was this made by this thirteen year old kid in Indiana who made a, a video of Tonight I'm Gonna Rock You Tonight with us uh, done as Lego characters. Uh, really cute, lovely I piece. We showed a minute of it, and so then we make a DVD of the tour. That's in the DVD. And uh, unfortunately, I received bad advice, and we submit it to uh, lawyers for uh, clearance, and they go, you have to clear it with the Lego people. And now, this video has been up on YouTube for years, we even have the kid who made the video come to our show in, in Indianapolis and introduce him from the stage and everything. Or Milwaukee, I forget, but anywhere. Uh, and now the Lego people say it has to be taken out because the song, Tonight I'm Gonna Rock You Tonight, has a line in it, uh, you're too young and I'm too well hung, that promotes uh, underage sex. And we said two things. A, it's been on YouTube. You haven't done a takedown notice on YouTube. And B, if you go to YouTube, there's Lego uh, uh, liquor store robbery. There's Lego yeah. you know, mass murder. Uh, why pick on us? So Did the, so what ended up happening? You ended up taking it out of the had to, had to In the middle of authoring, had to rip out, uh, the, rip, stop the authoring process, go find uh, not as good uh, a video of the song because we ended up using that song and, and put that in. Cost thousands of dollars. Thank you, Lego. Well, there you go. See, see, it's a small's world, and you think you're not going to get into <laughs> trouble. Right. Come on, that's right. <laughs> so, are you guys uh, working on anything new that uh, well you share with us? Um, we love to play. Uh, Chris is doing a TV series. I'm doing a TV series. So we have to get sort of those things out of the way. Next year is the 35th anniversary. Sorry, 30th anniversary of the movie. So right. it might be nice to do something. We'll see. I've written some lyrics for some new songs. Uh, Want to share any titles with us? You know, I was trying to remember. Um, I ha oh, yeah, one that Michael and I have, have worked on, uh, a song about uh, rock and roll sex called It Don't Get Old, <laughs> which is, of course, a lie. <laughs> well, uh, That's the joke of the song, is it? I, I would love to be in one of, you know, you guys must have the greatest time when you're doing these things. Of course, it's work because you have to produce something. Yeah, but I mean, you know... Uh, my wife and I are both, and I'm sure you are too, lucky enough to do what you love for a living. Absolutely. And so, it's um, never. Yeah. I'm never having more fun than when I'm working my hardest. Right. You know? It's true. So it's absolutely true. Okay. So other things you've been involved in, you've written at least one book that I know of. Yeah. Well, I've written probably more. Three books, say. one novel. Three books and one novel. Yeah. So how do you find time to do all these things? I mean, do you ever have downtime? Yeah. Actually, I should add Judith. Yeah. Judith, do you see him much? <laughs> Judith is a very talented uh, singer, songwriter, wife who I've had the pleasure of working with. And uh, but I, I just you know. Well, one of the one, of, one of my day? secrets is I don't eat lunch, uh, so there's an extra hour or two a day, uh, right there. Okay, you would eat, but do you eat, any, eat an extra large breakfast? I eat a big lunch? breakfast and a big dinner, which I always have. And I so found, those take up about the same amount of time as lunch. No, right? you <laughs> people eat three meals a day. <laughs> well, actually, I, I don't eat much breakfast. Oh well, there you go. There okay, you go, so. no, but I, I still don't. Do I, I, you know, I just I'm a workaholic. I like I like what I do, so I do it. Uh, I, I Judith and I share the trait that we get very morose when we're not working. 
Okay. Well, I, I, I get it. But yeah. so you've been on, and you've also made a number of movies as a director, producer. I've, I made a couple of movies as a director. Uh, the last one was a documentary about the, uh, the investigations into why New Orleans flooded in 2005. The, the, really the most serious thing I've ever, only serious. Yeah. Was say. yeah, yeah. Uh, there's not a, a laugh in it, unfortunately. Uh, uh, and uh, a whistleblower from the agency that built the system that collapsed in 2005 who says that there are serious problems in the system that's been rebuilt at a cost of $14 billion to the American public. Um, and I've, I've made four records of, of uh, songs, funny songs. So what's left that you haven't done? you want to write an opera? or? A... I have a musical right. that oh, I've co-written uh, about the life of J. Edgar Hoover right. called J. Edgar! Exclamation point. Uh, which is the the basically the love story of J. Edgar Hoover and Clyde Tolson, his as we call him in the show, his lifetime assistant. Um, <laughs> there's a beautiful ballad called "Lifetime Assistant" in the in the show. Written the music was written by a wonderful composer, uh, was Barbara Streisand's music director for many years, and and did a lot of orchestrating and some composing on Broadway. Uh, passed away a few years ago. His name is Peter Matz. Oh sure. And we went to Peter, uh, my partner Tom Leopold, and I with the. Uh, libretto and the lyrics and said uh, just imagine in terms of composing the music that this was Frank Lesser's last show uh, pre-rock musical pre-Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, and Peter came up with a brilliant score that you know just has wonderfully hummable songs the the reason we said that is because the frame of the show is J. Edgar Hoover is on his deathbed uh, in, in you know delirium dreaming of his life and of course, he dreams of his life as a musical. So, <laughs> that's a great concept. Yeah. So, you're just still trying to get that. Um, we did a we did a, a, a production of it uh, for LA Theater Works that does radio oh, sure. uh, theater, and then we did a stage reading of it at the Aspen Comedy Festival, and then we've hit a million walls since then. Uh, three producers in London were very interested, very interested until the time came to start writing checks at which time the interest evaporated uh, like the morning dew. Uh, a guy here uh, in town who was the silent partner of Spelling and Goldberg uh, made a preemptive bid on the show the minute it had been first aired on radio, and we had a, a one-year deal with him. And we found out the interesting facts as we went along that he was, I'm not going to name names, uh, but he was uh, among the most well-closeted uh, gay people in Hollywood, and his wife was uh, the gossip columnist at the time for the LA Times, who, after the death of Walter Winchell, was Hoover's main source for who was gay in Hollywood, which he wanted to know. Wow. So we realized that the guy had optioned the show not to produce it, but to quash it. Wow. That's a great... It's a cute story. It's another another <laughs> great story. <laughs> wow. That's pretty amazing. Um very cool. Yeah. All right. And I'm, you know, we, we were right at the time of the celebration of Tom Lehrer's 85th birthday, the great humorous uh, satirical songwriter. So I have to mention that and say that he's one of the in inspirations for me starting to, you know, write funny songs uh, myself. He and Stan Freeberg. Hmm. Uh, Stan the Freeberg, great Stan sure. Freeberg. Uh, so I, I, I stand on their shoulders. <laughs> 
And you've done done them proud, you know. Thank I mean, you. Obviously, we've, uh, we're all familiar with your work and uh, everything you've been doing. It's probably, uh, strangely enough, best known for the voices of the Simpsons these days, which is these so things happen completely different than the yeah. Harry, you know, the, the show Harry. Yeah. Which you're in the, uh, Although that's how I that's how they found me. Matt was a fan of the radio show, <laughs> knew that I did a lot of characters, voices. yeah, and so they hornswoggled me into that deal. With the so were the voices that you do on the Simpsons. Did you bring the characters? Did they bring the characters to you? Did they, did they hear your voice and say, "We want a voice like this"? And then, I mean, was it? No, it was. It was purely. I would read the stage directions that would say, "He's an old guy. He's a miser. He's rich. He owns the nuclear plant." And I would uh, make a, an intuitive leap to, "He sounds like this." And I figure, you know, and I'd go to the read through and. Each, each time a character was introduced, I went through a very non-analytical, non-thoughtful process of just going, uh, <laughs> and figured if they didn't like it, they'd tell me to stop, and if they didn't tell me to stop, I'd keep doing it. Uh, only two of the characters were based, I started running out of, uh, they weren't based on anybody that I knew. Okay. Uh, only two had any relationship to uh, what we might loosely call reality. Uh, I had done on a... a television show for HBO, a takeoff on Charles Kirault, who used to do those on-the-road yes. features for CBS. And so uh, <laughs> Principal Skinner was sort of a, a version of Charles Kirault sped up and, and moved down and pitch a little bit. And then uh, Reverend Lovejoy was based on uh, a guy I'd done on, on that pilot, the TV show, uh, a, a preacher who used to be... Uh, uh, all over the dial on television. Ernest Angley okay. used to do healings, uh, and he was uh, he was a bit on the flamboyant side. <laughs> and so the, the, I again changed the pitch and, and made that reverend. So how many how many different voices? I mean, there's three recurring ones. And oh, there's there's twenty recurring ones that I do. Twenty recurring. Yeah, ones. yeah. Well, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, they get their money's worth. <laughs> that's yeah. Well, twenty recurring voices. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Multiple personalities. Yeah. That's amazing. But that's, you know, it was what attracted me about doing that show is I never wanted to be on a, on a regular TV show where I only played one character all the time. Uh, I, I just thought that would be, you know, the next worst thing to not working is to play the same character all the time. Okay. And so fast forward now, you did a TV show last year in London. Oh, yes. Where well, you were one character. Where but, I it was, was, but it was such a great character. Yes. Well, the character I've, <laughs> I've wanted to play all my life. And... Uh, it's only six episodes, so I, Can't I, get old, I don't <laughs> risk boredom. Um, I grew up in, in California, so I've always been uh, obsessed by Richard M. Nixon. And uh, so when I saw Frost Nixon, this is really true, uh, I thought, well, they got Frost pretty good, but that's not Nixon. Oh. So I thought, if I'm going to do this, I better do it now before he goes into the the public memory as yeah. just sort of this B-movie-grade villain. You kids, get off my lawn. Um, <laughs> yes, Mr. President. So <laughs> I, uh, I went to this, uh, got connected through an agent to this, com this production company in England because I knew this show would never be made in this, in this country. Uh, I'll tell you why in a minute. Uh, but the idea of it was to take the, as I referred to them in... in pitch meetings, pardon my French, the crazy motherfucker conversations from the White House tapes and uh, play them verbatim uh, for real as if, uh, and, and shoot them as if Nixon had hidden not just microphones in the White House but cameras. 
Um, and so that's what we did. And, and we made it look as if it were sort of vintage videotape. Um, and so they're very strange scenes uh, from Nixon. But, I mean, he taped everything. He, the reason why is, unlike other presidents who would start the machine when they wanted to tape something, he, he knew when everybody around him knew that he was a technophobe and a klutz. So he didn't trust himself to operate the equipment. So it was voice activated. So everything was taped, which is a treasure, is a true treasure. Oh my God. Uh, so I played Nixon, and I, we had this wonderful cast. of. Anyway, the reason I didn't think we could do it in this country was I dreaded the meeting where some executive would say, look, I know he doesn't like black people, but does he, like, does he have to hate Jews too? <laughs> so, yes, he does. As it turns out. Yeah, and uh, the show is actually verbatim. It is ver absolutely verbatim, which it's is the, the hardest kind of uh, dialogue to memorize because any written dialogue is, whether a writer is trying to be realistic or not, he can't help himself. It tends to be linear. And uh, as, as you all know, if, if you've ever had to work with actors in a, in a musical uh, performance situation in the theater... Uh, the hardest thing to memorize is stuff that has repetition, but it goes different places. Okay. So are we in the first one that goes here or are we in the second one that goes there? Well, Nixon's uh, verbatim conversation is full of repeated phrases that go different wormholes at different times and, and strange turns of phrase, all of which, as you realize what they actually are, are indicative of character. So you have to get them absolutely right to get the guy. Uh, even though they're they're goofy turns of phrase, so uh, you know, word order gets scrambled, and it's very hard to to memorize as a result. But he, a perfect example of hardest work, most fun. All right. No music. But plus, uh, except, except that Judith wrote the uh, opening title song, which is called "Nixon's the One," because we had found a campaign song, song by Connie Stevens, and couldn't clear it because we couldn't find the publisher. Nobody would claim publishing on it. Wow. So. Judith wrote an original song, and then I was able to have my my friend and a guy I've uh, always adored, Dan Hicks, mm -hmm. of Dan Hicks and the Hot Lakes, who sure. long time ago wrote this song that had nothing to do with Richard Nixon, except when you listen to it, it absolutely describes him to a T, called Moody Richard slash Innocent Bystander, and it's the closing title for the show. So, so you have a song at the, song at the time, in front of the song. Half hour? Hour? Half hour. Half hour? So are these gonna? Are you gonna be able to get them on the DVD in this country? Or Hopefully, anything? or Netflix, or Hulu, or oh, on sure. somebody's air. You know, so just not network, but it'll we no, maybe HBO, maybe Showtime. Who knows? You know, we'll try to sell them over here as a big British hit once it airs over there, because nothing mesmerizes American executives more than big the British phrase hits. "big British hit." Right. Yeah. Well, it was idle. So let's talk about all the things that we've stolen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it bamboozles them, <laughs> to say the least. Um, why don't we open up for questions? I'm sure there's lots of other great stories that Harry has for us, but uh, let's see if we can get them directed by some of the members of the audience. Anybody have any questions? Mm -hmm. <laughs> found that life could be taped off in the So much so that when I leave here, I go back to the Conan O'Brien show <laughs> where I'm appearing with a, a, a young band called Fallout Boy who are doing their new song, and the staging of it is two of the band members are trapped in pods and including the bass player, and I come out to sub for the bass player in the band, and then dwarves come out as a little Stonehenge is dropped into the stage. So yeah, uh, my favorite moment, though, uh, of all of that has to be uh, Tapas playing Royal Albert Hall. Yes, and um, and 
it was a very we did a very big show with a lot of stagecraft and a lot of stupid we we started the show by flying in from the rafters and two of us got stuck in the middle and so we were hanging there our legs dangling <laughs> all sorts of and and our stonehenge was too big to get into royal albert hall so they're trying to jam it in the back door um but and at one point we're doing a song called christmas with the devil and uh i have to change i i have a a tail uh, a, a prehensile tail that i wear uh for that song so i go into the wings to uh get do my costume change and as I'm walking through the wings, I see a guy who's just out of view but can see the stage who's on his haunches like this. He's been sitting watching the whole show like this. Gives me one of these as I walk by, and it's George Harrison. Whoa. <laughs> Can't beat that. Can't beat that at all. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> Is there a relationship between the perfect pitch and your ability to voice Yeah, I think so. Um, I think, you know... Uh, being with two people that I work with all the time, Christopher and Michael, they don't have perfect pitch, but they have musical ears. I think musical ear rather than perfect pitch is the link because they both can do a lot of different voices and they can do a lot of different characters. And I think uh, a musical ear helps you greatly with that. Uh, perfect pitch doesn't help you that much, but a musical ear where you kind of sense where a, a particular voice is pitched Absolutely, but right. to know that it's G or F sharp, it's not worth that much. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think I think you'll. I think this is why you find this strange, especially when I go back and look at the people who were doing comedy when I was growing up. Jack Benny was a very accomplished violin player. Uh, Henny Youngman played the violin. Uh, other people have played piano. You know, uh, Steve Allen, piano player. Uh, Music ears and comic comedy talent, or, or certain kinds of comedy talent, I do think go together. Not for stand-ups so much, but for characters and other kinds of comedy. I think musical ears really help. Uh, what, is there? Is do you have like a favorite voice that you like to do? I mean, is there a voice that when you're just trying to be, you know, offhandedly funny, that you automatically go to? No, or, no, it's all situational. It's all situational. Yeah. So. yeah. And is there a favorite voice? Do you have a character that you've created in, in your voice that you think is like, that's one that I really... Well, I mean, the, the character that I'm most fond of is Derek Smalls because I've played him most often. Okay. And, and I mean, when you go, as we have, uh, to do a press day and do questions and answers with uh, media people for eight hours mm -hmm. and you're with two other people and you're totally improvising for eight hours in character. Uh, you know, there's nothing that gets you uh, fond of a character like doing that. I mean, that's just, you know, we've improvised in so many places, in so many situations, and over time. Right. Uh, and I played him more than anybody else, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very fond of him. Cool. All right, well, thank you very, very My much pleasure. for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn-Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. 
For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast. 